program is brought to you by UCL, London's global university. Just before I start, first of all, can everyone hear me? Excellent. Before I start, let me give you an academic health warning. Um, what I'm going to cover today is really the tip of the iceberg. This is a very complicated story where the context of the story, the setting of the story, is almost as important as the events which took place themselves. And in order to understand the context or the setting, we have to go through a number of different stages, looking at various different things from Spain to the role of the Catholic Church and various other things connected with Portugal. Okay, so hopefully we'll be able to go through that. I'm going to focus mainly on the period between 1940 to 1942. The reason I'm doing this is partly for time, but also this period was the time when in Lisbon things were not fully organized. This was an unexpected development to the Portuguese, which took them by surprise, and the response took more or less two years to be fully systematic. And I understand, obviously, as the war went on, the demand to try and escape out of Europe from the horrors of the Nazis through to Lisbon grew. But as they came to Lisbon, the systems of which they came into Lisbon were much better organized in a, in a much uh, more systematic way. So I'm going to focus mainly on the period when the refugee crisis started in the summer of 1940 and go up until 1942, the start of uh, 1942. <clears throat> Lisboetas learnt of the outbreak of World War II from the morning papers, which contain the latest proclamation from the Portuguese authoritarian government. The government warned that while the seat of war was distant, it could not be a matter of indifference to Portugal. It went on to caution that the country could not expect to escape the reactions of a long and terrible war, and the government called upon the population to bear with fortitude the inevitable sacrifices and difficulties that lay ahead. Of greatest significance, however, was the confirmation that despite defence obligations of an ancient alliance with England, which the government claimed that it had no wish to refrain from confirming at so grave a moment, it did not oblige the country to abandon its position of neutrality. The statement itself did not amount to a formal declaration of neutrality, but its intent was clear for all to see. The government in Lisbon hoped to quietly sit out the war. Almost overnight, however, Lisbon and Portugal became one of the major centers of world affairs. Its geographical position, its excellent shipping facilities for traffic to the Mediterranean, and to the north and south of America, the strategic importance of the Azores Islands and the Portuguese colonies in Africa and the Far East, and the existence in Portugal of raw materials such as Wolfram gave Lisbon and Portugal a sudden importance to the plans of both sides in the war. Naturally, all this importance had a downside if Portugal did not keep each side of the war happy, there was a real chance of having economic sanctions imposed against it by the Allied powers and of invasion by the Germans 
possibly with the help of the Spanish. The man who had struggled to deal with Portugal's problems prior to the war and with some success now faced the difficult job of trying to navigate his country through the complexities of World War II. Portugal's leader, Dr. Antonio de Oliveira Salazar, who one British official described as the most physically beautiful of all European dictators, sat alone in his sparsely furnished office in the Prime Minister's residence behind the magnificent Palacio de Sao Bento, assessing the situation, the international situation, on a daily basis. A man hugely dedicated to his job and his country, Salazar was determined that his carefully crafted policy of neutrality would save the nation and the Portuguese empire from the horrors of war. At the start of the war, Salazar served as the president of the council, the prime minister, a position that he'd held since 1932. He was, however, no primus inter pares prime minister. He also held the cabinet portfolios of Minister of War, Minister of Foreign Affairs, and Minister of Finance. In this respect, his style of rule resembled more that of Benito Mussolini of Italy than General Francisco Franco of Spain, who never held a ministry. Political power, as a result, was almost totally centralized in Salazar's hands, whose love of detail, ability to work long hours, an apparent lack of interest in a social life or family allowed him to deal personally and directly with issues that other leaders would have delegated to their lieutenants. Nineteen forty, summer. As you know, France falls. Many thousands of refugees that arrived in Lisbon during the long hot summer of nineteen forty had fled Paris and traveled to the south of France and through Spain and across Portugal. As Arthur Kessler, the writer, put it, Lisbon was the best bottleneck of Europe, the last open gate of a concentration camp extending over the greater part of the continent's surface. By watching that interminable possession, one realized that the catalog of possible reasons for persecution under the new order was much longer than any specialist could imagine. Of the original refugees, many, if not the majority, were Jewish and were looking to collect the relevant and complex paperwork needed to get to the United States or Palestine. A large number of the Jewish refugees were wealthy, former re residents of Paris and the surrounding areas, and were using their funds the best way they could to secure their onward passage. Other refugees were less financially well-off, particularly those from Eastern Europe, and needed support from the Portuguese authorities and the British. What nearly all the refugees had in common was the wait. Once in Lisbon, nothing happened quickly. Both the American consulate and the British embassy were initially hugely understaffed to deal with the number of the influx of refugees coming to Lisbon. The completion of the paperwork and gathering of the correct stamps and passports all took time. On top of this, trans transport arrangements had to be arranged uh, for the limited number of places on ships going to the United States or other destinations. Among the refugees were royalty, many famous artists, all who had to experience the uncertainties of Lisbon life for a few difficult months. The refugee crisis that gripped Lisbon 
in the summer of 1940 was largely caused by the actions of one man. Aristides de Souza Mendes, the Portuguese consul in Bordeaux. Like Salazar, Aristides de Souza Mendes had graduated in law from Coimbra University. He was a son of a highly regarded court judge in the center of the country and was considered to be from a moderately aristocratic family. He enjoyed a relatively poor diplomatic career. His career was overshadowed by his twin brother, Cesar, who had served as um, Salazar's first Minister of Foreign Affairs. In June 1940, thousands of refugees had gathered in Bordeaux in the hope of fleeing the German advance through France, through France. With the fall of Paris, Bordeaux had become the temporary capital of France. It was from Bordeaux that on the morning of the 17th of June 1940 that Charles de Gaulle climbed aboard a small plane and left the country with, as Winston Churchill put it, carrying the honour of France. In his cramped office in his first floor building in the centre of Bordeaux, Aristides de Souza Mendes was working long days and nights issuing transit visas to refugees who had been waiting several days in order to get the correct paperwork. In the middle of June, the situation in Bordeaux had become chaotic. Soldiers were imposing discipline and order on the queues of increasingly desperate people. According to his nephew, Sousa Mendes became ill, exhausted, and had to lie down. At this point, he considered what to do and whether he should enforce the strict criteria of visas imposed by Salazar and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Lisbon regarding who should be allowed to enter Portugal and who not. Eventually, he decided to abandon this policy and to issue visas to anyone over a period of time. The previous year, on the 13th of November 1939, Sousa Mendes, like all other Portuguese consuls around the world, had received a circular from the Portuguese Foreign Ministry, known as Circular 14, which for the first time introduced a racial or religious criteria to the question of temporary immigration to Portugal. Circular 14 instructed the consuls that any stateless person or Jew would need to have their case directly referred to the Portuguese Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Sousa Mendes noted that the new process would have been difficult to implement at the best of times, but given the situation in Portugal in 1940 and in Europe in general, it made for impossible delays. He was also aware that the foreign ministry was turning down nearly all requests by Jews for visas to enter Portugal. Eventually, with the help of a team of helpers, he understood that if he failed to act, these people would simply not get out of Europe. Circular 14 itself was not issued out of thin air. Throughout the 1930s, the, the dictatorship had made efforts to erect barriers to stop any refugees staying in Portugal. This type of action was not unique to Portugal, but with the country's limited economic means, it was viewed as necessary. Refugees who did man manage to enter Portugal during this time were generally not treated badly. Efforts were made to house them in tourist, area, tourist areas away from Lisbon, but with limited means, the country was not able to support the outside parties to do much. Put simply, during this period, it was primarily economic constraints that made the Portuguese reluctant to accept more refugees. Those that did come were not allowed to enter the Portuguese jobs market, nor were they able to claim any state 
benefits that were open to the Portuguese. When, when the story of Aristides de Souza Mendes started to become public during the 1960s, original estimates were put at the number of visas that he issued at around 30,000. On the basis of these numbers, Sousa Mendes came to be known as the Portuguese version of Raoul Wallenberg, who saved 100,000 Jews in Hungary between 1944 to 45, approximately. However, for a number of reasons, this comparison is not particularly valid, and I'll explain why. The number of 30,000 refugees that Sousa Mendes was sought to have saved has been widely quoted by both journalistic and academic sources. The real number, however, is considerably lower. The report of the Portuguese secret police, the PVDE, who were responsible for controlling Portugal's borders, indicates a much lower number. The PVD report for 1940 puts the numbers as follows. Entry by land to Portugal, 30,854. By sea, 6,800. By air, 5,843 making a total of 43,540. Exits, people leaving, come to a total of 36,000, leaving 6,000 who were still there. <clears throat> so, according to the records of the consulate in Bordeaux, the actual number of visas granted by Sousa de Mendes between the 1st of January and the 22nd of June, when he was recalled to Lisbon, was only 2,862. The majority of these visas, 1,500, were granted between the 11th and 22nd of June. In terms of the number of Jews amongst this group, it is clear that according to official estimates of Jewish rescue groups operating in Lisbon during the second half of 1940, some 1,500 Jews came to Portugal without onward visas, and they subsequently sailed from Lisbon. To this figure, you have to add those Jews who were able to make their own transport uh, arrangements to the city and who were not dependent on the rescue groups operating there. Even allowing for this figure, there was a massive gap between the reality and the actual number that Sousa Mendes saved. And this, clearly the 30,000 figure has become something of an exaggeration. However, that said, most of the Jews who did escape through France in the summer of 1940, clearly did so with the work of Sousa Mendes. And therefore, perhaps it's better we describe him as a, as a Wallenberg light. In Portugal, his work, and, and such is his fame now, that um, when RTP, the state broadcaster, ran its uh, equivalent, or Grand Portugueses, which was the equivalent of the same, the similar BBC program, The Greatest Britain, Aristides de Souza Mendes was voted the third greatest Portuguese person of all time. Uh, Antonio de Salazar, Oliveira de Salazar was number one. Whatever the real number of refugees, Salazar was furious with Mendes Souza for his insubordination. He ordered his immediate recall back, from Liz back to Lisbon, where disciplinary procedures were soon started against him. In truth, Salazar's anger was based on two points. Number one, the insubordination itself, and the timing, of, and number two, the timing of Sousa Mendes' actions. From Salazar's perspective, the first reason was not difficult to comprehend. Sousa Mendes had worked independently of the, forest, uh, the Portuguese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, when it should not be forgotten that Sir Salazar was a serving minister. 
He had clearly not followed the rules for granting his visas as outlined clearly in Circular 14, and his actions had huge repercussions for Lisbon, which would have to house the refugees before their onward passage on the limited number of ships that could be arranged. Portugal, it should be remembered, uh, remained a country of limited economic means that despite marked improvements that had taken place, still was one of the poorest in Europe. Many of the refugees that arrived in Lisbon had limited financial means and, uh, and many of, many, much of their money had been taken up already paying for transportation and their money soon went in Lisbon on hotel and bureaucratic charges. The timing of Sousa Mendes' action caused enormous problems to Salazar and his carefully planned attempt to preserve Portuguese neutrality for the duration of the war. Salazar believed that in order to achieve this key policy goal, he needed to personally retain sole control over all areas and aspects of foreign policy. Indeed, the consul's actions led directly to a major increase in diplomatic tensions between Portugal and Spain at a key juncture in the war. With the German army on the, on the French-Spanish border, pressure was increasing on the from the Germans on General Franco to join the war on the Axis side. Mussolini had already joined battle with the Italians on the Axel side, and there was a sense that not only Portugal's neutrality, but also its very independence was in great peril. The actions of Sousa Mendes led directly to Spain crossing, closing its border with France, and as one Spanish official suggested, that the Germans might well choose to go after the refugees and enter Spain and Portugal. The careful strategy of Salazar and the British of trying to induce General Franco of Spain economically and politically to stay out the war was in the eyes of Salazar being jeopardized by the actions of his lone wolf diplomat. The Portuguese ambassador to Spain, Pedro Teotonio Pereira, reported to Salazar that the situation on the border was truly distressing and there was a chance that the Germans would force Spain to join the war and subsequently uh, come into Portugal. On June 2nd, 1940, Salazar ordered that Sousa Mendes return immediately to Lisbon, and on the 4th of July, uh, the disciplinary hearings against him started. Aracita Sousa, a portly white-haired and well-dressed man who was rarely seen without his grey spats, defended himself at the inquiry at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The evidence against him was complex and was based on a number of factors. This was not his first brush with the Foreign Office, or indeed Salazar. The diary of Salazar of 13th of January 1935 actually notes there was an ongoing investigation into the affairs of Aristides de Sousa Mendes over budgets being sent to Portugal. The investigation centered upon the delay in sending funds to Lisbon when he had served as a consul in Antwerp. In January 1940, earlier in the year, while serving in Bordeaux, Sousa Mendes had been warned about his conduct in issuing visas to foreigners against the regulations issued in Lisbon. The final straw for Salazar possibly came in the form of a written, pro uh, a written protest from the British Embassy in Lisbon, which complained about an alleged special tax being charged by the Portuguese consul in Bordeaux in the name of charity. More specifically, the ambassador was instructed by the Foreign Office in London to complain about the opening hours of the Portuguese consulate in Bordeaux and the fact that um, visas were being charged for. Uh, the British alleged that at least on one occasion a British subject had been asked to pay 
uh, tax to a Portuguese charity before the visa application had been signed. There were other cases uh, against Sousa Mendes as well. There was a case from San Francisco in 1923. Overall, of the 15 allegations against him, the key allegation, of course, uh, focused on his issuing the uh, visas for finance. Sousa Mendes denied all the charges. He, he denied the fact that he had asked for money, except only on one occasion when uh, a member of the Rothschild family had demanded to be served on that particular day. And it was a Sunday, and so therefore there was a special charge made. Um, he also denied um, issuing anything for Portuguese charities, and he accepted the charge that the embassy had stayed open outside normal hours because he argued the queue is for so long, what could I possibly do? In the end, the committee ruled that Susan Mendes was guilty and that he should be barred from the diplomatic service for between 30 to 180 days with a subsequent loss of pay. This was overturned personally by Salazar, who issued another decree stating that he would be retained in the service without working for six months, and after that he would be effectively kicked out. It would be the end, it was the end of his diplomatic career. Aristides de Souza de Mendes appealed against the decision, and for the next 10 years, both himself and his family spent the time trying to clear his name, but without any success. Salazar refused to even comment on, on the issue and made no, no, official, no official statement about it. So, of the Jews who are escaping, as time is short, I'm going to have to flick through this quite quickly. Let me just give you some key personalities. Moses Amlazak was the head of the permanent Jewish community in Lisbon. Why was he significant? Well, he was significant in different ways, but his most significance was that he was very close personally to Antonio uh, de Oliveira Salazar. And often, when the Jewish refugees were stopped on the border, he would have to personally intervene with the PVDE, the Portuguese secret police, in order to allow them or try and make a case for them to be able to enter the country. Sometimes he was successful, other times he was not. The major problem people had in trying to enter Portugal at the time was related to the fact that their documents for leaving France often did not coincide with the expiry date of their documents for entering Portugal. So by the time they left France, their visa, their transit visa to come through Portugal had expired. So either, in some cases, they tried to forge the date on it and they were caught, or in other times, uh, people like Moses Amlazak had to try and negotiate uh, an extension with the Portuguese police. Sometimes this involved escudos changing hands, and other times it was simply done uh, as an act of charity by the police. Much of the network that was coming to Lisbon came from this man here, Varian Fry, who was responsible initially between 1940 and 1942 for getting out a number 
of Jewish intellectuals and artists, people such as uh, Peggy Guggenheim, uh, the artist Mark Chagall, all came through, out through his network, as did um, Jakob um, Bershold as well. Uh, there were a number of people who came out who he was very responsible for bringing them out. And if I had more time, I would go on. The refugees arrived in Lisbon at an incredibly strange time. While the rest of Europe was fighting, the Portuguese had planned for years to hold a huge exhibition, something like a modern-day expo exhibition, which uh, took place down exactly in the area where the refugees were trying to leave the country. So here they were trying to get onto ships, and there was this huge exhibition, something in the region of about a square kilometre, uh, which, was, which was going on. If you look up there to the right, you'll see Rocio at night during the war. Rocio was the centre square in Portugal. It was the square where the majority of refugees uh, hung out in the cafes. It's where they were being watched by the Portuguese secret police. There were a number of cafes around the square. And that is where, uh, when you read accounts of Lisbon during the war, such as Arthur Kessler's arrival and departure, this is the area that he's essentially um, writing about. And there again, you see it. When you read accounts of, of the refugees, the, the one thing that struck them when they first arrived in Portugal, in Lisbon, were, of course, the lights. Well, the lights were going out all over Europe, blackouts. Lisbon continued to be beautifully lit at night with white lights. And just a, fi a final point before I conclude. Uh, the refugees, particularly the wealthy refugees, stayed in hotels, uh, major hotels. They stayed in were Hotel Palicio in Estoril and the Hotel Aviz in uh, Lisbon. These hotels were uh, hotels that were used by both Germans and British. So often the refugees would be having breakfast in the morning next to the German intelligence officer. I mean, it was a strange situation where it was very, very open. And contact uh, between both sides, uh, the British and the Germans, was, was very direct. But this was the context that the refugees were, were coming into. Uh, if I had more time, I, I would go on and describe um, some of the, um, the experience of the refugees, which I hope to do. But as time is short, I'm just going to go through and show you some um, visuals. This was the clipper. This is what every refugee's dream was, was to get a place on the clipper. For the very wealthy refugees, the clipper flew from Lisbon to New York. It flew uh, twice a week, uh, a luxurious airliner, obviously taking off in the sea. Uh, the man, the British were responsible for um, organizing the initial um, uh, dealing with the refugees. Um, when you read the book, I hope, hope when you read the book, um, you'll notice that the British object initially to any Jewish organizations working out of Lisbon. They object to any rescue groups going to work in Lisbon to deal with the Jewish refugees. The Foreign Office advises Salazar that he should not allow these groups to operate in Lisbon. Salazar rejects their advice, and um, these groups do actually start to take part. 
These are, these are pictures here from the US Holocaust Memorial Museum. Uh, refugees waiting to embark on the ships. Uh, it was chaotic, it was noisy. Again, here you see another group here waiting. Uh, these two pictures are of, um, there were three major groups of children who were got out, who totaled uh, something, I think it was just over 300 people. Um, there would have been a lot more, but because of the problem I just described with the visas running out and the transit visas in Lisbon not corresponding with other visas, lots of these children unfortunately didn't make it to Lisbon. But three groups did get out. Uh, each group was round about just over, just over 100. And here you can see them there posing for a photograph. Again, this is them at the, at the docks. Uh, that is, this is the departure of them there. This is um, another group arriving at the railway station at Santa Polonia in, in Lisbon. This is what everyone really wanted to get on the left, which was a first-class ticket on the boat. But on the right, you see a telegram confirming that 111 children have been rescued and are on the ship. Uh, the picture on the left are the various members of the Jewish welfare organizations that were operating in Lisbon, um, enjoying a banquet together. And the picture on the right are a, a group uh, of refugees about to board the Portuguese ship. Again, here you see other pictures of uh, waiting and waiting to get on a ship. And finally, uh, this is a picture of the director of the American Joint Distribution Committee. There were mainly three ships that were used, and the most famous of them was the Serpa Pinto. And the final point, if I can make, even once you're on the ship, your ordeal might not be over. In 1944, the German U-boat stopped this ship in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. It pulled all the passengers off the ship, claiming there was an illegal cargo on, made them go into the uh, lifeboats, where they waited for three hours before the Germans uh, got orders from Berlin whether or not to sink the ship. Eventually, the order came not to sink the ship. It was a neutral ship. And they put the passengers back on, and they were allowed to go on their way. Unfortunately, uh, one, possibly two people died while remounting um, the ship. There are different accounts of this in, in different sources. I hope to say more to you today, but as, as time is very short, this is just a very basic outline of, of the story. Um, there are many, many other factors which affected the refugees in Lisbon. You need to look at areas such as Wolfram, and you need to also look at, hugely at the role of the Catholic Church in Portugal as well. But for there, I'll stop and give you some time to ask questions. Thanks very much, uh, Neil, for a, a wonderful uh, and informative view of uh, a, a slice of history. Um, do we have any questions? We have, uh, yes, I've got a question here. I'll start straight off. What was Franco's attitude to having the refugees going through his country? And two, what was the attitude of the Catholic Church, which must have been very strong in Portugal at that time, to the refugees coming in? Uh, the, it's a good question. The attitude of Franco was horror. Um, he did not want the refugees coming through Spain. Um, if they were coming through, they were given very tight schedules as to how long they could spend in Spain. 
Franco attitude, Franco and his phalangist attitude towards the Jews in general was much more anti-Semitic than Salazar. Um, when you look at um, his attitude prior to Second World War, um, it was much less favourable than the Portuguese. He saw it as potentially allowing the Germans an excuse to apply more pressure on him as well. So for him, it, it was something that he wished to stop. And he put a lot of pressure on Salazar to, um, if Salazar was going to allow this to happen, that they must come through Spain very, very quickly and not be allowed to stop. They were put on trains, and their first stop was basically at the Portuguese border. Yes. The attitude of the Catholic Church was, was, was uh, much more, in Portugal, was very complicated. On the one level, uh, they were acting on a humanitarian level. On, on the other level, they, initially when the refugees came, there was some concern as to the impact they might have in Portugal. But once they understood that refugees were going to be there for a very short period of time, then the Catholic Church um, applied pressure on Salazar to be much more humanitarian, to, to allow the refugees to come, to effectively bend the rules, the bureaucratic rules, to help them as much as possible. Okay. Good. Any, I've got a question over here. Yes? What was the rationale of uh, Sir Ronald Campbell in uh, trying to persuade the authorities not to help? Um, his rationale was quite simple. He thought it would give the Germans an excuse to um, effectively a propaganda victory. At the time, Britain and Germany were competing uh, within uh, Portugal for, for influence, and Campbell felt the Germans would use this as an excuse to stir things up and possibly to try to make an attempt to, well, certainly to make an attempt to try and turn many Portuguese people against Britain. Um, it was, that was his basis. He was looking at the picture of the whole war rather than anything else. Initially, I thought it might have been something to do with Palestine, but from what I can figure out, it, that was a kind of irrelevance at the time. It was uh, somewhat of a similar question. Does the uh, historical perspective show that Salazar's reluctance to allow these immigrants because it would compromise the uh, neutrality of Portugal turn out to be uh, irrational, or was that really a well-founded uh, uh, apprehension? Um, Salazar's rationale was, was twofold. One, it was based on, on what you've just said, that he believed that um, the Germans would possibly use it as an excuse. Um, there was, at the time, there were lots of different factors involved. It was, so that was certainly one, one, one factor in it, but I'm not sure if, if, it, was the, if it was the only factor. But s certainly uh, there was an additional internal factor as well, which was Salazar, he wasn't sure initially who these people were. The secret police were telling him lots of these people were communists. In Portugal, the communists were the major opposition to Salazar at the time. So he feared all of a sudden all these communists coming into the country. Would they make connections with the local communists and would this lead to civil, civil disputes? So there was a huge internal element as well. Good. I think we've got time for one more question. Do we have one more question? Yes, I have one here. Yes, it's just a question about De Souza Mendes. Um, did he have any personal reason to do what he did, or was there a story or a diary that he left? Um, he claims that he acted out of humanitarian um, motivation. Uh, when he defended himself with, against uh, the tribunal, he argued that he was trying to repair some of the damage for Portugal's um, difficult past 
with, with, the, uh, with the Jews. Um, the charge against him, which was never really made, but was always in, the, always in the background, was the fact that he had 13 children. And therefore, financially, um, he needed to attract funds above and beyond his salary to pay for his, his family. So that the tribunal argued somewhat that he was looking for financial gain, whereas, whereas his argument was that he'd acted simply out of humanitarian uh, good. And he also argued to Salazar that this had done Portugal a lot of good because it got a lot of good publicity in the world. Portugal was seen as a, uh, as a caring Christian country trying to absorb these people and help them. Wow, 13 children. He'd been busy. <laughs> thank you so much, Neil. Absolutely wonderful uh, presentation. Thank please, you. thank you. To find out more about UCL, please visit us at itunes.ucl.ac.uk. Thank you.